Russia, mass migration and the hackers. How was 2015 for you? Our hearts all go out to the victims of these appalling terrorist acts. Everyone says Tunisia is the first democracy of the Arab world. Last night the RAF launched two waves of bombing missions, each of the four tornadoes carrying a payload of paveway-guided bombs and brimstone missiles. Welcome to the final SITREP of 2015. This week we're reflecting on the state of the world as the year draws to a close. I'm joined today by the Royal United Services Institute's recently appointed Director General, Dr Karen von Hippel, Chairman of the House of Commons Defence Select Committee, Dr Julian Lewis, and of course our resident defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to all of you today. Uh, Dr Karen von Hippel, the first woman and non-British national to lead the independent think tank RUSI. You spent the last year in Washington as Chief of Staff to General General John Allen, who was until November special presidential envoy for the Global Coalition to Counter IS. How was 2015 from the Washington perspective? 2015 was uh, not a happy year. I think we saw a lot of terrorist attacks. We saw ISIL expanding in a number of ways uh, in a number of different countries. And, uh, and at the same time, we also have a very nasty political campaign going on in the United States. So the Republican Party is really having this internal civil war and turning many things that should not be political into political fights. Dr. Julian Lewis, you're also in a new job this year as chair of the Defence Committee. What did 2015 look like from Westminster? Well, it was uh, rather earth-shaking. Um, for a start, the Prime Minister won an overall majority for the Conservative Party, which, according to an article written by his ex-speechwriter, was the one outcome that they hadn't prepared a draft <laughs> speech in anticipation for. Um, and then, of course, we had the upsurge and earthquake in the Labour Party, where uh, you had a total change of orientation at the top. But on the international national scene, as Karen says, it was more of the same but worse. Mm, Christopher? ISIS, um, the expansion of ISIS, um, but also refugees, the de destabilization of the mm. whole region by refugees, and of course the change in politics. Uh, I mean, the biggest thing for me was the fact the rapprochement between Cuba and the United States. And I think it's the biggest event of the year. So uh, it's been a very busy year, and the biggest global security story of 2015, as we were saying, has been the continued rise of so-called Islamic State. The front cover of this week's edition of Charlie Hebdo carries a cartoon of the Prophet Muhammad with a tear in his eye, holding a sign saying, Je suis Charlie, I am Charlie, under the words, all is forgiven. Our hearts all go out to the victims of these appalling terrorist acts. There was definitely one other guy who was completely different who had just a pair of red swimming shorts on and he was carrying a, an AK or an automatic weapon anyway down the middle of the complex. Everyone says Tunisia is the first democracy of the Arab world. The UK threat level remains at severe. Local journalists on the ground in Sinai tell us that ambulances are leaving from various areas around the crash site. The Bataclan attackers blew themselves to pieces at the end of their massacre, which is why identifying the third of them has taken so long. Nous nous sommes convaincus que nous devons continuer à frapper Daesh. We are convinced that we must continue to hit Daesh 
in Syria. President François Hollande there setting out his plans to fight back against IS after the Paris attacks last month. And Karen, uh, you were just leaving your previous job, weren't you, when mm. you heard news of that? Um, sense that something has to be done. Yeah, and this is why uh, in a situation like ISIS or dealing with ISIS, coalitions and partnerships are so important. And so I think the U.S. realizes they can't do it alone, but it really needs to be done in a, in a larger coalition, which is what has been built over the last year and a half. The issue is making that coalition do what it needs to do mm. to really defeat this threat. Julian Lewis, um, originally when the threat was first talked about publicly, it was talk about destroying dis 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 destruction of IS. And now it seems to be moving towards a kind of idea of containment. Is there an acceptance that IS is going to be here for some time to come? I don't think there is an acceptance of that. Um, there's still a lot of uh, pressure to get some sort of decisive result, but there's a lack of will to do what is necessary to get such a result. In what way? Well, you need to put together, from my personal perspective, you need to put together a grand coalition of all the powers that are against Daesh. Uh, and that means even working with the Russians in this area. Christopher, um the UK, there's a fear, or that people have been talking an awful lot, whether or not there will be sort of British boots getting involved on the ground. The latest development towards the end of the year is this Arab coalition brought together by Saudi Arabia. 34 countries, uh, including places like Mali in, in uh, Sierra Leone, in Africa as well, don't forget, and also Indonesia. It's not simply a Gulf state thing. Um, whether it can do anything, whether... Uh, you have to wait for a lot of those countries to make their own political moves because you can come up with a statement like this and you get back to the high street or, or, or to the parliament and they've got to uh, uh, fix things. I think what is happening, though, this year or what has happened in this past year is a new realisation. I, mean, I don't accept uh, Julian's idea that you know, it's, it's not a long-term thing. I think you could be sitting around here in 10 years' time and still talking about, we'll call it the containment, perhaps, of uh, a terrorism or ISIS, or whatever it is. We are here for the very, very long haul. Karen? Well, I think the term that we used when I was in government was defeat, uh, not destroy or eliminate, because the reality is once we do defeat ISIL on the ground, the idea will still live on, and it will reappear in a different form, a different iteration, and potentially even more violent going forward. So we're not, gonna, we're not going to be able to eliminate it as a threat. Um, the idea, of course, is not new. The idea has been around for decades at least, and uh, the, therefore containment is certainly applicable. The idea when it of being comes reverting to, to this caliphate uh, idea. Absolutely. Um, but, but what is new is the fact that this particular terrorist organisation has seized a substantial area of land and is intent in holding on to it. And in doing that, they've given up the great asset of terrorist groups, which is invisible and that's what has to be removed in the short to medium term. You've got to get used to the idea, haven't you, How a, what a terrorism, terrorism, terrorism is about. A terrorist wins if he doesn't lose. And you start there with your, your whole perspective of what is facing people. And what is maturing now is an international far more sophisticated view of how you handle terrorism. And in that sense, uh, Karen von Hippel, do you think that 2015 has really led to an understanding uh, from of, of a better understanding of former Western assumptions that uh, military and political superiority that no longer cuts any ice when you're dealing with asymmetrical warfare? I guess my big concern about the ISIL threat is 
we make a lot of assumptions about what we can do to defeat it, and not all of them are correct. Yes, we do need a military response as part of a larger package. We need to do things in the financial space and dealing with borders, etc. But actually, defeating the ideology is a challenge, and I don't think we really understand how to do that. Of course, events in Syria took a different turn when Russia began carrying out airstrikes against President Bashar al-Assad's opponents. Um, Karen, how did Washington see this when that started happening? Uh, the reality is I think the United States would be happy for Russia to join the coalition if they were to be a proper partner. When they joined, we were thinking, okay, great, let's see if they end up bombing IS. And all they ended up doing was bombing the partners that the U.S. government and others had been working with. Mm -hmm. The other thing the Russians have been doing is using cluster bombs. And cluster bombs, as we know, have a, they do not have a 100% rate of going off. So all these other little bombs fall out and about 10% of them do not go off, which means in a few years, children will be playing in the fields and will get hurt or killed by these cluster bombs. Julian Lewis, another example of Russia simply ignoring NATO demands to keep out of Syria, just as it did um, over the demands of Ukraine and Crimea. Well, I think those are two very different scenarios. Uh, Russia's behaviour in the Ukraine and Crimea is very worrying indeed from the point of but view of the return. But an example that it will from, do what it wants to do. From, from, well, that it will do what it considers to be in its interests. Uh, and that's really what one has to do in the real world as opposed to the world uh, of airy-fairy ideas and uh, ideals. And in particular, the, the problem with Western policy, unfortunately, is that it's in a state of denial about the choices that face us in, in these way? so-called Arab Spring countries. And that is that um, uh, if you had three choices between ruthless autocracy and authoritarianism on the one hand, uh, or totalitarian revolutionary fanaticism on the other, and a third choice as well, freedom and democracy, we'd all go for freedom and democracy. Unfortunately, there's not much sign in any of these countries that freedom and democracy is an option. So what is the option, Christopher? Well, the first thing you have to understand is that the West just cannot walk in and fix things. And that's something that is, is gradually uh, dawning. Karen, Karen, has the West really thought that it could do that? Uh, no, I, I think the lesson we all learned from Iraq was that sending a large number of foreign soldiers into these countries to try to do the work for them is not the right way to go. And so now if you look at the US, UK, Dutch, other countries that are involved in this counter-ISIL campaign, it is a, an advise and assist role, but the, the troops on the ground need to be leading the fight and need, need to be running it. You have well. There's something else in this, and, and we, you know, we were talking about Russia and how its involvement, etc. Earlier, start to start by saying this is not all Putin. We we sort of look at Putin because he's head of state, and that's quite reasonable. And say this is a Putin's fight, just as we might say it's Obama's fight or anybody else. Start seeing whose fingerprints are all over this sort of thing. Start looking, for example, the defence minister Sergei Shoigu. Mm -hmm. uh, everything you see is his sort of doctrine, which. Putin appointed him, so why would it be any different? But we've got to start getting deeper into why people do things mm. and who is running it and what authority they have and how long they can continue to well, I'd just like to say, if I may, that there's um, no uh, inconsistency between standing up firmly against Russia in what she's doing in Europe and realising that we have a common interest uh, with Russia in relation to Syria. Just well, like we did stood up against her in, uh, in, in Ukraine, yes, I see that point. <laughs> talk about some of the consequences though because 2015 has seen the biggest ever movement of people from the Middle East and North Africa into Europe. The UN High Commission for Refugees has reported that almost a million refugees and migrants have arrived in the EU by sea this year.
This is my destination. I cannot leave it. I have to do it really. And it's my chance because we can say Europe is better than Africa. We may never know how many people. It could be as many as 950 lives that were lost in this. It has shocked everyone and it appears that there is now some sort of political will towards finally finding a solution. We have 50 million people displaced, the highest number since the Second World War. We are living in times of crisis. What I'll be offering today is the Royal Navy flagship, HMS Bulwark, also with three helicopters and two other border patrol ships. That was the Prime Minister there announcing the British military effort to help in the migrants' crisis. Karen, what was the understanding in Washington of what was going on in the Mediterranean? Did the other big thinkers in defence anticipate this and the impact it would have? You know, it's a great question because I've been following the Syrian civil war since it started really in early 2012 or late 2011. And what what depresses me the most about it is Obama didn't want to do more than, you know, a few small, uh, I don't know, a few small programs, a few small activities. But you... It was the economics, was it? Well, we we supported the opposition. We did some things, but he did not want to play a major role. And you can't ignore a country being depopulated. Eventually, the dams burst. And that's what we saw in Europe with the migration crisis. Julian Lewis, did Britain react quickly enough? Well, I'm not sure that Britain has got a, a sensible idea on what to do in relation to the migrant crisis because uh, mixed in with the people who have been genu- gen- genuinely forced out of their homelands are plenty of other people who want simply to have a better standard of life and are willing to take the risks. And uh, what is the solution other than having proper border controls if you don't want the entire population of one disadvantaged or war-torn country to migrate to another. Christopher, you've done a lot of work on this. In fact, predicting it, you were, about two years ago. Is it going to get worse? Yeah, it is. Um, I mean, what we were doing then, this is a couple of years ago, only three years ago in, in the University of Perugia, we were putting together what would happen if you had mass migration for any reason in that particular region, and would it come further into Europe, and therefore what would Europe have to do? And Europe is now doing what it feels it has to do, and there's a great contrast between, uh, for political contrast, in what you're supposed to do, people actually putting up, literally putting up barbed wire in a region which is supposed to be open to any passport holder, etc. Let's not even mention Donald Trump. No, no, let's not mention Donald <laughs> Trump. Fact, because did. Donald Trump, <laughs> yeah, you probably, uh, but the, the, the important thing, I mean, I was there when the first refugees came ashore in Lampedusa, and you saw then the state of mind of people, not just what they looked like, not just the horror of a lot of other people who had died. Uh, it, was, it was identity they were talking about. And that's something else we don't understand about the whole refugee crisis, is a question of identity. And the next part of it is what you do militarily next. And you've got to do a great deal militarily next because at the moment it's a sea, sea air operation. It's going to be a land operation as well. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, 2015, the year the cyber war stepped up a gear. And what's the world going to look like in 12 months' time? So, in May, the UK elected a new government. No more coalition, but David Cameron's Conservative majority wasn't quite free to do as it pleased. The Scottish Nationalists and a new line-up in the Labour Party put paid to that. And in July, an unexpected announcement on defence spending. This government makes this choice. 
committing to our armed forces who fight to keep us free, committing to the intelligence agencies who keep us safe, committing to the values we hold dear and defend around the world, and so committing today to meet the NATO pledge to spend 2% of our national income on defence. Not just this year, but every year of this decade. Julian Lewis, now this is something you care deeply about and talked about in the run-up to that 2% of defence spending. Oh, well, it is. Spending. It is, indeed. And I have to be a little careful what I say because we're about to produce our report in next, yeah, next I, I month. Yeah, I remember talking to you about it and you had this whole list of things you are going to measure the government against, uh, weren't you? I, I, exactly. And to, the, to what extent uh, the goalposts have been shifted in the calculation of 2%. But the point I would make is simply this. Um, let us assume that there has been no creative accountancy and that the 2 percent is absolutely bona fide and comparing like with like as in the past. Mm -hmm. Should we be ringing the church bells about this? During the 1980s, for example, in the closing stages of the Cold War, we were regularly spending between 4 and 5 percent of GDP on defence. And it's all about the management of expectations, because when I asked the Prime Minister about a year or a year and a half ago to give an assurance that it would never fall below 2 percent as long as he was in office, I thought I was bowling him an easy ball and he was going to say of course it will never fall but <laughs> and and all of a sudden he said well it's not going to do it this year and it's not uh, planned to do it next year and then we'll have to see mm. it's two things struck me about 2015 and defense spending in this country one was that as we approached the uh, the strategic defense uh, review what we used to have as a defense white paper we didn't have any of these old admirals being bowled out in their bath chairs, <laughs> sort of saying, you know, there are only six 16-inch guns left in the Navy and, and the general is doing the same sort of thing. It was feel, wasn't it? There was a feel. It's as if they say, we've got this sewn up. And why have we got this sewn up is because the world in which we are dealing with at the moment is on fire and we will be OK. I think that the, the military has got a lot to, to worry about and I think that, that uh, November... A strategic defence review, not enough was concentrated, on, for example, on what do you do for manpower in the future? What do you do for longer term contracts? Mm. Do you really have force projection, we'll, we'll which is what you want to do? In a little moment about the defence review, but, but Karen, all this was happening when you were packing your bags to come to London. Uh, was there a sense globally of the importance of the end of coalition government in Britain? No. <laughs> By the look on your face, no. <laughs> I mean, I would like to say yes, but... Um, we we I think mean, too big ideas about no, our mean, station, perhaps. Amongst the people who care about global issues, yes, there were, you know, it was, it was fascinating. And I think, you know, Canada, United Kingdom, there were changes in government in a few places that were quite fascinating to watch. So I think, yes, there was some, there was definitely some interest there. But can I just go back to what uh, Julian was referring to? Because the, the, the numbers have gone up and the threats have gone up as Christopher was saying we're dealing with asymmetric threats we're dealing with traditional state actors like Russia flexing their muscles much more and then we also are dealing with potential disasters at levels we haven't seen in terms of natural disasters and so the armed forces are being asked to do much more in many different types of, of to deal with many different types of threats than they have perhaps in the past mm. and so I think those you know it is important that the numbers has gone up in the budget. Well let's talk now about uh, cyber whether in attack or defence it's been big news in 2015 the UK has been ahead of many other NATO states in funding cyber warfare programmes but this year proved that what the military and intelligence agencies see as common Common sense. Britain's human rights lawyers had an entirely different view. Uh, Christopher, your thoughts on cyber this year? Well, I think we start 12 years ago, right? Who had heard of Google? Only at Stanford. 
Has anybody ever heard of Google? Now the whole world is cyberited, and that uh, and the United Kingdom, in fact, I reckon at the moment is doing all its technology will allow it to do. But there's one uh, explicit warning from the from the director of GCHQ: um, you can get a 15-year-old can hack the system. Remember that. This is BFBS. Sit rep. The biggest event in the UK for the military was the publication of the Strategic Defence and Security Review on the 23rd of November. Uh, Julian Lewis, the Defence Committee, is the only parliamentary watchdog the services actually have. Uh, what did the SDSR do for the UK military? I think what it primarily did was to uh, address and attempt to fill the gaps that the previous SDSR had created. Patching and so, the holes in the bucket, was uh, it? Uh, uh, I, I would say, and patching them quite well at first glance. So, uh, but what it also did was something um, unremarked on, and that was the fact that it combined uh, with the Defence Review, it combined the um, uh, National Security Strategy as well in the same document. Um, and these, you liked that approach? Uh, well, I thought, it, I thought it was sensible to try and make the two of them marry up, and I've even seen it suggested that that had been the intention five years ago, <laughs> but the two of them were so dissimilar they couldn't be made to fit. Well, so, an so, it? so I think this one one has been less driven by purely financial concerns, mm -hmm. has made a genuine attempt to fill some of the gaps that were opened up, particularly to do with maritime patrol aircraft, for example, has sought to create a medium and long-term future plan. Um, but I'm always a bit wary of this whole idea of setting out a strategy publicly for defending the country, because after all, if you've got a, a real strategy to defend the country, that should be at the highest level of top-secret yes. classification. All right, what, what can we talk about, Christopher, about what it did for the, for the Navy and then the Army and then the RAF? Well, the Navy uh, had got it made to some extent because it already, already got its aircraft carriers. Whether you actually ever get two aircraft carriers to sea is another matter. It's also a maintenance problem, but that doesn't matter so much. But when you put an aircraft carrier to sea, you've got to have, say, six destroyer frigate escorts that go with it. You've probably got to have two submarines that go with it. You then formed a naval battle group, etc. Now, that is the size of the Navy problem, apart, apart from putting guys in that can run a ship. Carrier carries, what, about 700 ships company at the moment? Uh, that's a lot to find on a trickle drafting or however you do it, and that is going to be the, the big problem. With the RAF, uh, the RAF is sort of still waiting because it's got a naval and an air, and a, a, a land-based uh, set-up, and waiting to see what happens and what the delivery dates and what the delivery complements are on the F-35. Uh, the Army, I think, has got the biggest problem, and the Army looks good, sounds good, and... You know, it's got the problem, again, of manpower. And I think if, if 2015 brought the whole thing back together and said, forget the economics, and I believe the idea of a country standing up and saying, this is our strategy for the future, this is what we want Britain's place to be in the world. Now, military, can you guarantee that? Apart from that, the whole question of manpower is the biggest problem uh, that was highlighted, but wasn't talk much talked about in 2015. Mm. And uh, right now, the commitments of the RAF uh, talk about they're really being stretched to the limits of their capabilities. Yes, they are. And you uh, uh, go and ask go and ask uh, uh, the chief of the air staff how long he can operate uh, his his tornadoes uh, on on 
Iraq and Syria. I think he'd be hard pushed to operate them for very long. And where's he going to get all those brimstones he needs at 300 bucks a, a piece? Julian, the, the outcome of the renewal debate on Trident was never in question, but has the threat from IS and, and Russia's increasingly aggressive foreign policy reduced any political doubts about its successor? I don't think so, because um, one of the most appalling decisions uh, that the coalition took uh, was to put off the main gate contract signing date from the last parliament to this one. Uh, And it was done not because uh, the Conservatives didn't want to go ahead and not because the majority, a heavy majority of Labour MPs didn't want to go ahead, uh, but to satisfy the Liberal Democrats who were the tail wagging the dog. Um, And had there been another hung parliament, the whole future of the deterrent could have been put in doubt by uh, Liberal Democrats saying to Miliband and Cameron, well, whichever one of you will give up this single mm. weapon system, I'll give the keys to Downing Street too. Thank goodness that uh, dreadful scenario didn't happen, and although the SNP is, of course, uh, very firmly and consistently against renewal, there is an overall majority in favour, and if we only have the vote, there will be a very heavy majority uh, in now You did this checklist, didn't you, uh, for the Defence Review before, before yes. it happened. Uh, you're going to be reporting back in the new year Yes. What we're planning to do um, is a series of short, uh, tightly focused um, reports on individual aspects of the SDSR. Marks out ten on um, each. Exactly. <laughs> OK. Uh, so as we approach the end of 2015, uh, what do we think the world will look like this time next year? I'll put that to you, Karen, first of all. <laughs> Difficult to say, isn't it? <laughs> and yeah. it's being recorded. <laughs> yes. I, I think we will continue to see uh, ISIL... Uh, ISIL core, ISIL affiliates, or ISIL wannabes lashing out in a number of countries around the world. And I don't know we'll be able to do much to stop that from happening. At the same time, I think militarily, we will do a lot to clamp down on them. I think Russia will continue to expand and flex its muscles in very erratic ways, like we've been seeing so far. I think we also need to be watching uh, China and uh, and see where what China does economically and politically. Um, and then I would say just on the good news side, let's hope that the Iran negotiation goes forward in a positive way. I think Cuba is another success story. So it's not all doom and gloom, I mm. would say. Dr. Julian Lewis. I'm afraid that my main contribution to uh, international relations theory has always been to talk about the total unpredictability of crises and disasters and general disruption of international affairs. So I'm afraid I'd be cutting against that if I made firm predictions. Uh, what I what I think <laughs> oh, it's go on. <laughs> okay. What I think it's what I think it's safe to predict is that our uh, fundamentalist Islamist enemies will go on and on and on, behaving more and more atrociously and spreading more and more widely until such time as the latest brand of the moment, namely IS or Daesh, is frustrated, suppressed, discredited, call it what you will. My mind goes back to the old terrorist movements of the 60s and 70s that always denied any connection with the Soviet Union. But when eventually the Soviet Union imploded, they withered. And that's why it's so important to deal with the heartland and the centre and the land area that has been grabbed by Daesh and to deal with it decisively. Christopher. Watch what's happening in Moscow. Very, very important. Uh, Sergei Shoigoy. Mikhail Bogdanov, Valery Gerasimov. Look at those names. Watch those names. That's You've got the Defence Minister, the Deputy Foreign Minister and the CGS. They are going to guarantee Putin's ambitions. And so watch what they're saying. Um, I think also think about uh, economics. 
the uh, United States has done something which it hasn't done for seven years, and that's raised uh, it, it, its, its base rate, its interest rate. Economics in the world are going to start changing now. We're going into a new phase. We're coming out of that austerity phase. And when that happens, you start looking down and looking back even to 2008 and what happened then. Economic discontrol, as it's called, uh, it, it, it is, is coming our way. And when it does, things like defence budgets, things like ambitions, things like uh, retracting all start to come to the surface. OK, uh, just 20 seconds each to talk about what the biggest story of the year was, Karen, to you, first of biggest all. Biggest story of 2015? 2015, yeah. I guess uh, Russia-Ukraine, probably. Because? Because it was unexpected and because it, it was a throwback to a previous era, that kind of land grab, that kind of you know bold land grab, the way they did it. Julian Lewis. I, I think the Paris atrocity, but the pro point about atrocities is that just because something terrible happens, you shouldn't change an unsound strategy um, uh, uh, into something that remains unsound because you're upset by it. Christopher. Okay, IS, etc., they're, they're, they're givens. Let me tell you, my, this is a personal thing. When I was a kid, tiny child, I was in, uh, I was in Cuba the day that Castro took over. By chance, I was actually in Cuba during the missile crisis. I think the rapprochement uh, of Cuba is going to go and go and go because it's so important. But it was the, to me, it was the biggest event because it meant almost that communism was finally over. And that is all we have time for this week, or in fact for this year. My thanks to Karen von Hippel, Julian Lewis and Christopher Lee for your time today. Have a lovely Christmas. We're back in three weeks' time. So from me, Kate Chabot and all the SITREP team, Merry Christmas to you and a very happy new year. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.